Welcome to Webcology. Webcology is the show that takes you into the deepest and darkest ends of the ecosystem on the internet. Our guides will take you on a journey into web marketing and bring you the experts and the information so that you can further explore the web marketing world. Now, here are the hosts of Webcology, Jim Hedger and Dave Davies. Welcome to Webcology here on webmasterradio.fm and for all of you around the world and here in America, hoping that you're having a very happy Thanksgiving wherever you are and wherever you are celebrating today. On the program today, we're going to start things off with a special one-on-one interview that Jim Hedger did about a month back where he spoke with Silicon Valley-based author Martin Ford. He recently penned the book called The Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. Uh, We featured it as part of our Miami Book Fair coverage earlier in November, and what we're doing now is we're going to now feature the entire interview that you did not get a chance to hear yet, where... Martin talks about what machine intelligence and robotics can accomplish and what implores employers, scholars, and policymakers alike to face the implications. We will have that coming up in just a moment. And a little bit later on, we're going to take you back to July of this year when Jim and Dave talked about IBM disclosing a working version of a much higher capacity chip. And in other words, saying that Moore's law was being accelerated. So we're going to have all that coming up for you very shortly. Right now, we're going to go and take you to our interview with Jim Hedger, speaking with Rise of the Robots author, Martin Ford. Martin Ford is the author of two books that look directly into your futures. His 2009 work, The Lights in the Tunnel, was one of the first deposit that advances in technologies and robotics would lead to a hollowing of the workforce by making a large part of it obsolete. His recent 2015 book, The Rise of the Robot, takes a much closer look at the changes brought by mass automation and the attendant economic chaos that that has and, and will ensue. Martin Ford owns a software development firm based in Sunnyvale, California, and he's written for publications including Forbes, Fortune, The Atlantic, Washington Post, Project Syndicate, The Huffington Post, and The Fiscal Times. He's appeared on numerous radio and television shows, been on NPR and CNBC, And now we have Martin Ford here on Webmaster Radio. Martin Ford, welcome to the network. Thank you for having me. Well, well, thanks for taking the time. And my listeners know that, you know, my world sort of intersects technology and social policy. I found Rise of the Robots, how to say this, most enlightening, terrifying books I've, I've read this year. I think it's going to have a large impact on my on my thinking uh, looking forward, especially in the realm of social policy. You could just really quickly describe the future you described in Rise of the Robots. Well, the, the central thesis of the book is that technology is getting better and better at displacing workers. For the first time in history, we now have machines and algorithms that, at least in a limited sense, can begin to think. We've now got technology taking on cognitive thinking tasks. It's not just about displacing muscle power anymore. It's about displacing brain power in many cases. And it's it's really ubiquitous. It's everywhere. This is something that's going to impact across the board in every sector of the economy, every industry, every you know type of work, basically. So it, it's really going to be something of unprecedented magnitude, I think. And I think that over the next couple of decades, we're going to see a big impact on employment and the job market, and it's something that we're all going to have to begin to talk about and figure out how we're going to adapt to that. 
Well, it's it's kind of scary when you mention the next couple decades. In the very first chapter of uh, Rise of the Robots, you cite Moore's Law over and over again, the idea that every 18 to 24 months we can double the processing power by doubling the number of transistors on a ship. I remember my very first computer, a, a, a TRS-80, that could barely function as a calculator. Now I have a, a, a computer that you know I, I can make video, record radio shows on. And this is in the span of, say, 25 to 30 years. I also remember when our auto manufacturers were just, just beginning to install robots back in the 80s in their factories. The hollowing of the rust belt on the south side of the Great Lakes and also in southern Ontario where I live. When you mention over the next couple decades, my stomach gets this feeling we ain't seen nothing yet. That's right. I mean, this is all subject to this acceleration. And so far, the most notable aspect of that acceleration has been Moore's Law, as you say, this ability to cram more transistors on a chip. But it's actually much broader than that. We see also an acceleration in communications bandwidth. We see an acceleration in software in many cases. We see new developments in, in the way computers are linked together. And you know we see systems where people are putting huge numbers of processors together to dramatically increase processing power as well. So all of this is coming together, and it means that the acceleration is going to continue for some time. And so you know when you when you think of an acceleration like that, one way I describe it in in my book is to think of getting in your car and and driving at five miles per hour and then gradually doubling your speed. If you were to do that, just a handful of times, you'd need a racetrack and probably a better car. If you did it 30 times, which is roughly the number of times we've seen computing power double, you'd be you know, a spaceship traveling at millions of miles per hour. And that's really what's happened here. That's why things are now moving so fast. We've had this acceleration going on, but the key insight is that it's been going on for so long that it now implies just an incredible amount of absolute progress. And one implication of that is we're going to see a lot of things that surprise us over the next 20, 30 years. Well, one thing I think that has most certainly surprised economists and, and, and social planners, in the past, every major wave of technology, I mean, going back to the, to the Industrial Revolution at least, every major wave of technology has created you know, a short-term disruption, but in the long run, bettered the lives of the average worker and, in fact, created more jobs. This is the first time in modern history that such incredible advances in technology threaten jobs. That's right. And I, I think that part of what's happening, is, you know, first of all, the, the, what you say is true, that historically it, it has been a positive force for most workers. And as a result of that, there continues to be a lot of skepticism out there. I mean, a lot of economists would say this is not something we should worry about, that history shows clearly that technology makes workers better off. But the argument that I'm making is that this time really is different. And, and again, it goes back to that fact that technology is now taking on cognitive tasks. Technology is displacing brain power as well as muscle power. And, and therefore, it means that technology is now beginning to encroach on that fundamental capability that really sets human beings apart. And it's the capability that so far has kept us ahead of the march of technology and ensured that, that technology did make us better off. But this transition, what it really means is that the nature of machines is changing. Machines used to be exclusively tools. They were things used by workers, and they made the workers more productive. Now machines are becoming more autonomous. And in many cases, at least for many kinds of jobs and many people, the machines are, instead of enhancing the value of those workers, they're actually beginning to replace those workers. 
And in some cases, they're making those workers less valuable instead of more valuable. And that's the big change that's happening. Well, well, indeed, in the, in the middle chapters of Rise of the Robots, you mention um, white collar jobs, jobs in education, jobs in the healthcare sector. You talk about jobs at universities. You know, to sort of steal a quote from you, these are people who did the right things. They went to school, they got their degrees, they got advanced education, they are experts in their fields. But, you know, from lawyers to radiologists, they're suddenly threatened. That's right. And that this is the thing that is perhaps going to be the most disruptive because it upends our conventional views, you know, our conventional assumptions about how this works. I mean, the way that has always worked in the past is that, yes, automation or technology will come along and take your job in the warehouse or the factory, standing on the assembly line or whatever low-skilled thing you're doing. And the, the solution to that is supposed to be, well, let's send that person back to school, give them some more training then they can move up the skills ladder and they can do something more rewarding that requires more skill and hopefully pays more. That's the way it has worked in the past. But now what we see is technology is really coming for those high-skilled jobs as well. It, it turns out it's not just people that can climb that skills ladder. The machines and the algorithms are doing it too. And what it means is that they're going to come increasingly for a lot of those good jobs, the kind of jobs that college graduates take, and that, you know, really have provided that, that hope and promise of, of advancement in, in the past. So that really upends the conventional solution, which has always been more education. You know, what do you do if the machines are coming for the jobs that would be taken by those more educated people as well? That's going to be the, the problem that we face going forward. Well, how can a robot replace, say, the people in my lawyer's law office? How does a robot know to draw this contract to insert this codicil in a will or, or what have you? Well, first of all, of course, I'm using the term robot very broadly here. Uh, you know, it's not just physical machine-like robots that, that we think of, but it's any kind of software, any kind of automation. So a lot of the robots that I'm talking about are really just software. And in this case, the technology that's really driving this is what's called machine learning. And machine learning is where a smart algorithm looks at lots and lots of data and then based on that data, it learns by itself. It figures things out and it's able to make predictions. So this is completely different from the assumption that many of us still have. And that is that whatever a computer does has to be programmed specifically by a person. You know, some programmer somewhere has to sit down and tell that computer step by step what to do. Machine learning is completely different from that. Machine learning is essentially a computer or a software programming or software program learning by itself and figuring out how to do stuff. And that's the thing that's really disruptive, and that's what's being used in, in the law office. I mean, it's a machine learning algorithm that is able to look at lots and lots of legal documents and based on that, figure out how to do these tasks. And this is a technology that's going to just unfold across the board. It's going to just impact all kinds of jobs all, all over the place, really. So, um, again, that's the thing that's really disruptive and different this time around. One point that you had made, I believe it was in the in the chapter addressing white-collar jobs, is that the computers, and, and again, we will interchange computers, software, and bots throughout this interview, no doubt. The computers are actually learning from the human workers who are currently doing the job. So a say, second-year lawyer, or maybe even maybe even an articling law student, and instructing the computer, instructing the software as they go along. 
That's right. One of the things that's happening, and I think most people are beginning to be aware of it, is that if you work, especially in a big corporation, there's just huge amounts of data being collected on everything that employees are doing, in some cases, even how employees move around the building and so forth. So there's this enormous amount of data being collected out there, and all of that data is essentially going to become like a feedstock for these smart algorithms. I mean, they're, they're going to be churning through this data and learning all kinds of things. It's going to turn out that a lot of jobs and tasks are encapsulated in that data. So it is true that as you work going about your job, in many cases, you're generating data that eventually could be looked at by a smart algorithm that will figure out how to do what you're doing. So again, this is one of the things that is really disruptive and it's something that is going to continue to accelerate. I mean, it's still kind of in its infancy right now. It's just starting out. But as we look ahead 10, 20 years or more, these technologies are just going to get better and better and more and more capable. In your mind, when did this start? And more importantly, why didn't um, economists and planners see it? Well, I think it's been going on for decades at a minimum, certainly since the beginning of the computer revolution. But again, because because this is subject to an acceleration, it, you know, it's very gradual. Initially, it's a very small impact, um, and it gets greater and greater over time. But in my book, I talk about the economic trends in the United States, and you can look at a number of things. You can look at the fact that wages for most workers have stagnated, even as productivity has increased. You can look at the fact that the economy appears to be getting less and less effective at generating jobs. Every decade over the past you know, 50 years or so have generated fewer jobs in, in percentage terms than the previous decade for the most part. So you know, something's happening. There's a structural shift happening in the economy. I think that technology is a big part of what's happening. It's not the only thing. There are obviously other things. There is globalization. There is political shifts. There's demographic changes and so forth. Those are things that are important too, but I do think that technology is probably the most important force that's bringing this about. And we already, I think, can identify an impact based on what's happened already. And again, the important thing to keep in mind is that all of this is subject to this acceleration. So in the future, the impact is going to be much greater than it has been in the past. So it's really, although you can see things that have happened already, it's really the future that's important. You know, that's where the big impact lies. And that leads me to um, almost a coincidental quote. On page 51 of your book, in the chapter is this time different, you quote Christia Friedland, a uh, journalist for Reuters, who wrote, the middle class frog isn't being gradually boiled. It's being periodically grilled at a very high heat. Now, I don't know I don't know if you're aware of this, but Ms. Friedland was recently elected as a member of parliament in Canada and was elevated to the cabinet as international trade minister uh, on Wednesday. So Ms. Right. So, is now a cabinet minister. So it's great that, that there is at least someone in government that, that is a little bit in tune with, with what's happening. Um, we definitely need more of that. We certainly don't have much of it in the United States, that's for sure, as you can see from what's going on in our presidential primary. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I, I'm terrified. By the way, if robot, if uh, machines could take over the GOP, if they already have it, that would be excellent, because at least they know who built the pyramid. That's right. So Ms. Friedland clearly gets it. But as you know, she's a, she's a minister in a fairly powerful government. Is there anything she can do to stem the wave to or help the country adjust to the wave 
Right. I think I think the second thing you said is what's critical. I mean, I think this is going to require an adaptation. We can't stop this. And, and in fact, we don't want to stop this. I mean, you know, people who are techno-optimists will tell you that technology makes us better off. And economists will, will universally tell you that in the past, technology has made us all better off. And, you know, I think that will continue to be true or it can be true. But we need you just need to understand that we're at a point of disruption where things are going to be a little bit different and we need to make an adaptation to ensure that everyone in our society continues to be made better off by these remarkable advances that we're going to see. I, the key insight is I don't think that will just happen automatically because that's the way capitalism works. I don't think so. I think that if we just leave it and don't do anything, we're very likely to run into a big problem. And in particular, we're going to have just soaring, unprecedented inequality and a lot of people that, that really get into trouble. So the key is to adapt to this, and you know that's not going to be easy because, again, this is something that defies the conventional solution, which has always been you know give people more education. It's going to ultimately, I think, require something more radical than that. What I propose in my book is an idea that's not new, and, and it's essentially uh, some form of a guaranteed income, so that someday, and I'm not saying today, but maybe a decade or two in the future. We're going to make sure that everyone in our society has access to at least a minimal income. And that is one way, obviously, to address this. Uh, but that's incredibly radical, certainly in the United States. Again, you look at what's happening in the Republican Party, and it, it's almost impossible to imagine that. But the paradox is that although it seems politically unthinkable right now that we could ever move in that direction, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have to if we want to continue to have broad-based prosperity. Well, well, indeed. I mean, this is all about this is all about wealth distribution. And our current paradigm for wealth distribution is: you go get a job, you work hard, they pay you, you have some degree of wealth. But if those jobs aren't there, then people will have to find other means of acquiring some degree of wealth. That's um, right. People have got to have an income, and and there are two important points about that. One is that people need an income to survive economically, obviously which is the, you know, the, the thing that will come into focus first. But there's another point, too, which is that the economy needs consumers. We need a reasonable distribution of income and purchasing power throughout the economy so that there are people out there who can buy the stuff that's being produced. If we don't have that, and if we run into a future scenario where lots of people are unemployed or lots of people have very low incomes as a result of this, then it means there are fewer people out there who can buy the things being produced and fewer people that can really drive economic prosperity. And, and if that happens, the risk we run is that we could get into kind of a downward economic spiral. And obviously that would be very bad for everyone, including the people that do have jobs. So this is something that I think is going to have to become part of the conversation over the next couple of decades. Let's go with the guaranteed income first off. Right now, you're listening to Jim Hedger speaking to Martin Ford, author of Rise of the Robots. We'll be back to go ahead and give you the final part of that interview right after this. Sit tight and don't move. Webcology. We'll be back after this short break. Celebrating the best in online advertising, the Web Marketing Association presents 
the 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is February 15th, 2016. All winners will have their entry highlighted on the Internet Advertising Competition website, as well as receive a handsome trophy to display or a personalized certificate of achievement. Be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry into the Web Marketing Association's 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your entry today at iacaward.org. That's iacaward.org. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, seen other SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS, text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm, sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. Commercials off. Now back to Webcology, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here are the hosts, Jim Hedger and Dave Davies. Welcome back to Webcology here on this Thanksgiving day on webmasterradio.fm. Now back to our interview with Jim Hedger, speaking with Rise of the Robots author, Martin Ford. What would uh, stop people from just well, and, and I mean, this is this is rather rather frightening thinking about it. What would stop people from just getting lazy, not going to school, not advancing themselves, not improving themselves, or finding ways to advance society and culture? Well, I think there are ways to address that. It is absolutely true that that's probably the greatest risk associated with the guaranteed income, and as a result of that, you're going to have to be very careful about how you design that income so that you don't destroy incentives for people to be productive. But I think it's very possible to do that. One idea that I propose is that we can incorporate incentives for more education into the income so that if you have more education, you actually get a slightly higher income, from, for example. So that there would be a built-in incentive there. The other thing to keep in mind is that initially, at least, this would probably be fairly minimal. It would not offer a luxurious lifestyle. It would offer you know, a, a basic lifestyle where you can survive. And the, the important thing in, in designing a program is to make sure we don't destroy the incentive for people to do more on top of that income. So, for example, the last thing we would want to do is if someone decided to work, we wouldn't want to tax away all that income 
right away at a low level. So if you design it properly, then I think that, that you can create a, a basic safety net and you can still have the incentive for people to do more productive things, maybe get a job, maybe start a business and so forth on top of that income so that they can have a, an even better life. And I think if we do that properly, we could actually have a more dynamic entrepreneurial economy where people are more likely to take a risk and maybe start a business because they know they have a safety net there that will protect them even if that business fails. So we could actually end up with a more dynamic economy than what we have now. Well, unfortunately, we're, we're not, as you said earlier, we're not even close to that place yet. So for, for younger people, you know, they, they still have to do all the right things because really there's nothing else to do. But looking forward, what are those right things? You know, education undoubtedly is going to continue to be critically important. It's a good idea for everyone to get as much education as they can, no doubt about that. The problem that I'm pointing out is that even with that, you know, some people are going to not find a foothold in the economy and that, you know, we're going to have to address that as a question of public policy. But in terms of what individuals should do, sure, they should pursue as much education as possible. You should try to emphasize more creative roles. You want to end up doing something that is creative or, or non-routine rather than a, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is a job that is, is routine and predictable because regardless of your skill level, if you're doing something that is routine and predictable, then eventually machine learning and, and other technology is going to come along and displace you. So well, you want you to be kind of careful about the kind of role that you choose. You own a software development firm based in uh, Silicon Valley. Is your business threatened by automation? Well, it's not specifically threatened by automation, but I, I have definitely seen an impact. I mean, when I started my business way back in the 1990s, it was a Windows software business, basically, and producing software was pretty labor-intensive. I mean, there were CD-ROMs that were shipped to customers and, and a printed manual and all of that. So there were jobs for what we might think of as average people to produce all that and to fulfill it, you know, to put it in boxes and send it to customers and so forth. And all of that is basically evaporated. Now, of course, software is delivered electronically or it's just hosted out in the cloud. And, and so lots and lots of those kinds of jobs have already disappeared, even in my small business. You know, that's kind of what motivated me originally to get involved in this and begin writing about it, because I could see that what was happening just in my little software business was kind of a preview of what was likely to unfold in the whole economy as, as the technologies like robotics and artificial intelligence become increasingly capable. So that's, I think, the challenge that we face going forward. We're, we're looking at a very you know, a dystopian future, a future where there's you know, no work with a sense of accomplishment that I, that, I, that I think humans need to live in this very challenging world. But there's got to be good stuff that comes from the rise of robotics, the rise of automation as well. For instance, superintelligence. We... <laughs> I carry in my pocket a device that's capable of accessing the entirety of written human knowledge. That's, that, that has to be beneficial moving into the future. How might the rise of robotics be really beneficial for the average human? Right. I mean, you're saying you use the word dystopian, and it could end up that way if we don't adapt to it. But if, if, if we do adapt to it, and incorporate um, policies that will allow us to make sure that everyone benefits from these things, then it can be a very utopian rather than dystopian future. You can imagine a future where no one has to do a dangerous job, no one has to do a job they really hate or that's really boring, and people can focus on things that they find more fulfilling. 
I mean, it, it is true that human beings need that sense of accomplishment and purpose, but I don't think it's true that that necessarily has to come from your job that pays you a wage. I mean, there are many examples of things that people do today that they find fulfilling that they don't get paid for, right? They do community activism, they, they volunteer, people edit Wikipedia and spend countless hours doing that and they don't get paid for it, but you know they apparently find a sense of fulfillment in it. In the technical area, there are a lot of software people that work in off open source software. They create amazing things that they don't get paid for. So there are plenty of opportunities for people to get that sense of accomplishment without necessarily being paid for it. So I think that the key in the future is going to be basically to separate or decouple those two things. You know, we're still going to have an income and we're still going to have that sense of doing something important, but they're not necessarily going to come from the same place. And that could turn out to be a fantastic thing for humanity, not a dystopian thing at all. It just requires that we understand what's happening and make the proper adaptation. I'm afraid we're approaching the end of the uh, of our time together, so I, I want to bulk a whole bunch of questions into a short period of time, but I'm not going to get the chance to. Are you lecturing? Are you on the road? Are you visiting numerous cities and then and, and, and doing presentations, pushing rise of the robot, or talking at conferences? Where can people? I ask do questions. I have a Twitter. They can they can watch me on Twitter and and perhaps tweet me some questions. I try to answer those. I do go around and do quite a lot of speaking. I've been really all over the world. I've been to Australia, a number of countries in Europe, the UK, talking about this, and, and all throughout the United States. I attend a lot of conferences and so forth. So it's certainly possible that uh, you may have an opportunity to see me speak. Again, this is really becoming a really important focus for me. I, I think that this is just a critically important issue that we all need to engage with. And so I'm doing everything I can to really get the word out there. And, and the important thing is not just that I talk about it, that it, but that everyone talks about it. I mean, I think that one of the most important things that can happen is that people become aware of this and become attuned to it and start talking about it. And that this really becomes sort of a general public discussion that we all have. And hopefully out of that discussion and conversation will emerge some practical solutions to this. How do you find your messages being received? Well, I think it's generally very positive. I mean, it, it Whenever I go to give a presentation, if there's a question and answer period afterwards, you know, I, there are too many questions to answer usually. Uh, people are really interested in this. I think they're really tuned to it. They see it happening in many cases in their own work environments, and people are really beginning to get that this is something we've got to talk about. So I, I'm quite positive that as this continues, you know, it will become a big issue and that we're going to have this conversation, and, and, and that gives me hope that, that there will be solutions that will develop. Well, if people wanted to have this conversation in their own communities or get involved in organizations that might bring a more positive outcome, either economically or socially or on the education front or where have you, a more positive outcome in the future. Can you think of anywhere, any organizations that exist today that you'd suggest people join or at least pay more attention to? At this point, I don't. I don't think we're quite at that stage where there's any organization specifically focused on that. I think you know we're a little. We're not quite there yet. We're we're at the point now where we're. I'm really trying to build awareness of this, and I think that as people discuss it, I'm sure there will be you know some some of those organizations that will emerge. To the extent that people have access to the political process, I think that ultimately that's what's going to be required. You know, we're going to have to get the politicians involved in this. So. That's something to be thinking about, and, and how can we do that? How can we you know, make, generate more awareness of this? 
earlier today, the text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was released. And I read small sections of it. I mean, it's a massive document. And it's terrifying. I'm curious what politicians can do now to help us adapt. But again, given the political climate, at least here in North America, it's hard to have hope, eh? Yeah, I mean, the political process is really discouraging, um, that's for sure, especially in the U.S. I mean, I think the Canadians are doing a little better. But just recently. Uh, that's right. Recently. You know, you are, I, I believe you're moving in the right direction, whereas I'm not so sure we are. So it, it's easy to become discouraged, but again, I think that if enough people begin to talk about this, then it's inevitable that, that it will enter our political discourse as well. And I think that the critical thing is to just, you know, continue to have this conversation and, and try to do what we can to make people aware of these trends. Well, Martin Ford, author of Rise of the Robot and Lights in the Tunnel. I haven't read that yet. I strongly recommend the audience get out, purchase a copy of Rise of the Robots, basic books. You can find it on Amazon or, at, you know, any local bookstore. Martin Ford, thank you for uh, Rise of the Robots and thank you for joining us on Webmaster Radio today. Thanks so much for having me. Martin Ford is the author of Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. You can now find the book on Amazon.com. So go ahead and look forward and pick up a copy today. Stay tuned. Moore's Law Accelerated Discuss as Dave Davies joins Jim Hedger for the final portion of Webcology coming up after this. Sit tight and don't move. Webcology. We'll be back after this short break. Is buying something that is made in the USA important to you? How do you know that it really is made in the USA? Certified Inc. is the only supply chain audit company on the planet which qualifies country of origin labeling. If it's important to you as a consumer to know where the products you buy and use in your own home come from, then it's also important for your customers. Visit us at madeinusa.net and find out more. Go to madeinusa.net because it's that important. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. 
NickNameJet.com. Webcology, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here are the hosts, Jim Hedger and Dave Davies. Welcome back to Webcology here on this Thanksgiving day here on webmasterradio.fm. That's going to take you now to an encore segment where Jim Hedger and Dave Davies speak about Moore's Law Accelerated. We now take you back to July 9th, 2015. There used to be a hard rule. That uh, you know, we believed in it. It's, it's, it's been a hard rule since the 1960s. It's called Moore's Law. Ever since the very first transistor chip, Moore's Law has held that you know every year and a half, every 18 months, advances in technology would allow that chip to have twice as many uh, diodes or transistors on it. It would, it would be, you know, you could make a chip twice as big every 18 months or so, or carry twice as much capacity every every 18 months or so, and that's been true from the mid-60s to today. Mm-hmm. And it looks as if IBM might have broken Moore's Law. We've Great gotten IBM, to... you broke the law. Okay, <laughs> explain what you mean by that, because this is, this is a, a fantastic story and a fantastic innovation. Yeah, absolutely. We've gotten to the point where um, it's pretty difficult to put more transistors on a chip. It's the chips are so small and so densely packed now that, you know, for the last uh, year or so, people have been suggesting that Moore's law has stalled. IBM has come up with a, uh, a process to make that same size chip four times as powerful. So they've broken Moore's law by accelerating it exponentially. Yeah, how incredible is that? Um, well, I mean, when you think about—I mean, think about the—think about the uh, the, the mobile device you carry in your pocket. Mm-hmm. That device is more powerful and more capable than the computer you probably started working on um, in your teens or early twenties. Oh, definitely. Um, in fact, um, your our, our our mobile devices are more powerful than. Um, the computers that run the space shuttle, but then again, so are most ATMs. <laughs> uh, but I mean, think, of the, think about the power of having the entire world's information in your pocket. Well, your mobile device is, you know, fairly bulky when you think about it. It could be made much, much smaller. Maybe um, the uh, increased processing power could be used to project images on flat surfaces or interface with um, glass glass surfaces. Who knows? Well, and one of the things I was excited um, when, I, when I was reading this too, and it, it's funny, this is, it's reminding me a little bit as I, as I sit at my, my machine that processes faster than I could possibly use at this point, um, you know, with its, its six monitors, and I think to myself, what, why? Right, like what? What more can we have? Um, and I recall sitting on a bus, finding out about the Pentium seventy five launch, and going, you know, I had a four eighty six. Like, 
Why? What can I possibly need more speed for mm-hmm. uh, than my than my 486 with its like probably two megs of RAM or something like that that it was carrying? Um, one of the, the the so uh, of course you know this is this is a great leap forward, and then there's tons of applications for it other than just doing the same thing but smaller. So of course, if you can make it faster, then you don't need as much of it. Um, but one of the other exciting things in, in from reading the the piece over at the New York Times. Um, is that they're looking at this cascade, and of course they can get good ideas on you know how things are going to progress given their you know the, the rate of evolution of, of different technologies over time, um, and they're looking at this one uh, continuing to speed up and shrink through 2018. So they're sort of carrying they've not just kickstarted Moore's law again, but they sort of resuscitated. Now it has a, a few more years of life left in it until they need to come up with another massive uh, massive advancement. Well, it may or it may not. Here's the um can they shrink shrink the size of transistors even smaller? Is the question. What's going to happen in the future? Can uh, has Moore's law effectively been well again for want of a better word broken or beaten? Um, and again, can transistors get even smaller? Probably, right. but these ones like. These transistors are seven nanometers uh, by the, the slightly larger than a strand of your DNA. <laughs> your <laughs> DNA is two point five nanometers in diameter. These are seven nanometers in diameter. Um, like that's inconceivably small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you, you've got to wonder where it all stops, right? And it doesn't is the answer. But <laughs> you've got to wonder how do you how do you advance on that? And that's why I'm glad that there are people much smarter than me. Absolutely. Anyway, so that, 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 that mark this date. It's the again the seventh of uh, of July, 2015. This is a day that the universe changed, or at least the day that we learned the universe has changed. Uh, this is a massive advancement, and like these, this could lead to like you know nanocomputers, not just nanotechnology, but nanocomputers. Computers so small you can barely perceive they're there. Yeah. Wow, eh? Yeah. No, it's incredible. We're out of time. On behalf of Dave Davies from Beanstalk Internet Marketing, this is Jim Hedger from Digital Always Media. You've been listening to Webcology on WebmasterRadio.fm. Stick around. More great content after the news. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.